Amen. Well, I can just go home, because that was my message, pretty much. Um, Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you this morning. I'm just going to ask you, as we get started, to open up your Bible or uh, turn on your Bible, as we uh, need to say these days, um, and uh, go to the book of Ephesians. We've been working through Ephesians the last several weeks, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2. Uh, the first uh, 10 chapters of Ephesians 2. And while you're doing that, once upon a time, I arose early in the morning and uh, was a little itchy on my arm and noticed that there were some bubbles on my arm and uh, being the guy that I am, As things got worse, I had to be instructed to go to the doctors and find out what it was. I already thought I knew what it was. I figured there's probably nothing really that can be done about it. I figured I had shingles. I've had shingles before. But I thought, ah, shingles on the arm, that's kind kind of an odd spot for that. But I went to the doctor. I said, doc, here's what the problem is. She said, I agree. And so she gave me some some medication. She gave me some ointment to put on it. And so I took the medication, and I put the ointment on it. And the bubbles got worse. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. Pretty much, it was my whole arm the next day. One big bubble. It was really nasty. Um, I apologize if you have a weak stomach. (laughs) It got to a point where I started to think that maybe it wasn't shingles. I knew at that point it wasn't shingles. And, uh, and, 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 And the great monster of misdiagnosis began to emerge. We all have misdiagnosis stories, don't we? I went back to the doctors, said, I'm pretty sure this is not shingles. She said, I'm pretty sure it's not either. She said, I have no idea what it is. So she made a call, got me into a skin specialist uh, that afternoon. So I went, and uh, the skin specialist, uh, within about 10 seconds, it was actually his intern, he says, hey, uh, what do you think this is? She goes, oh, that's easy, it's poison oak. So... The misdiagnosis had delayed an effective treatment. And not only had it delayed an effective treatment, it actually made things worse. Because remember that ointment I was putting on? It was oil-based. So I was rubbing that all over my arm, just digging that into the skin. The problem with misdiagnosing problems is that the, uh, the treatment is either ineffective or dangerous. That's the problem with misdiagnosing problems. One of the things I like to do is try to keep up on world issues. And there are preachers of the great problems of the world. The greatest problem of the world is this or that thing. And therefore, the great solution is this or that other thing. There are great organizations and rich people right now trying to solve our great crises. And the belief is that if we can find a solution to these crises, we can be okay. And that's good news. So people get excited when good news is on the horizon. How many of you are excited about getting your vaccine? (laughs) Don't put your hands up. I'm going to ask a whole bunch of rhetorical questions. You just answer within your own mind. Okay? I don't want you to feel like you're being set up all the time. 
But public health is a big issue right now. Some people think it's the issue. Some people at least behave like it's the issue. And if we could only find a solution to disease, we'll be okay. And that's their good news. What about poverty? If we could eradicate world poverty, would that be good news? Sure, it would be good news. Is that the greatest problem in the world? What about hunger? If we could just feed everybody in the world and put together a plan to produce enough to feed people, would that be good news? What about climate change? If we could just calm the planet down and stop climate change, just keep things the way that they've always been, at least for the last 100 years, would that be good news? What about sexism, racism, ageism, other forms of discrimination, all of those other evil isms, if we could get rid of those things, would we be okay? Would that be good news? So here's another rhetorical question. What is the greatest news for you? What is it that if you have it, it fills you with joy and a sense of security? What is it if you don't have it, it puts you into anxiety and depression? What is your good news? And what would confer the greatest benefit to humanity if we could just get that thing right? So poverty, apparently. I did, I did some research. I'm kind of a, that's kind of my thing. I just like to know things. I did some research. So at the high end, about $265 billion would theoretically eradicate poverty. $265 billion. Sounds like a lot of money, right? In fact, it is a lot of money. It's an abstract number. Nobody really can conceptualize that. $265 billion. But the 10 richest countries in the world have a combined net worth of $275 trillion. That's even more abstract. But they could deal with poverty, right? Or what about this? There's, a, there's just under 3,000 billionaires in the world today. Billionaires. Their net worth jumped $8 billion since the start of COVID to $13 billion. The top five of them have a combined net worth of just about exactly $500 billion. They could, they could take care of poverty at 265 twice over, by themselves. We produce enough food in the world to feed 10 billion people, and we're sitting at about 7.6 billion. So limited resources, that's not the problem, is it? So the solution is not more money. The solution is not more productivity. What is the solution? Well, if we misdiagnose the problem then we can never get the right solution. Misdiagnosing the problem leaves us with an ineffective treatment or a harmful treatment and utterly wasted efforts and fruitless lives. So we need to pay really close attention to what the actual problems are so, so that our good news is actual good news. Does that make sense? In uh, Christianity, you hear the term gospel all the time. Do you know what gospel means? Gospel just means, yeah, good news. It means good news. So we say, hey, let's go and share the gospel. 
Let's go and share the good news. But do we really believe that it's good news? Whatever your gospel is, whatever your good news is, whatever that thing is that you feel that you need in order to be okay, that becomes what you devote your life to. That becomes what you devote all of your efforts to. That becomes what you share with everybody. And sometimes it becomes what you demand from everybody. That's the nature of what it is to think that my greatest need is X and therefore my greatest benefit is Y. Does that make sense? So last week, we focused in Ephesians 1, we focused on Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. And what did Paul pray for the Ephesians? Paul's prayer, his earnest prayer with thanksgiving for the Ephesian believers is that God would open the eyes of their heart so that they could see and know three things. One, the hope to which they are called. Do you know the hope to which God is calling you today? Many of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Guess what? He's still calling you to the same hope that he once called you to. Paul's also praying that they would see and know the inheritance that God has for his kids. Do you know that inheritance? Are you looking forward to that? Is that good news to you? Paul also wants them to see and to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those who believe. Do you know what that power is? Don't you just sometimes, uh, sometimes I, I just, especially in settings like this, I just want God to show his power. Or if I'm talking to someone, God, just show your power. Do something crazy so that they'll say, oh my goodness, there's something going on here where you clearly have a connection to God. Don't you just want that sometimes? Sometimes I just, I pray, Lord, just, can you just come and show up and just shake the foundations of this place so that people will, just like in the beginning of Acts, so that people will actually know that there is a God in heaven and he does care about his people and he does have power to act and intervene into the affairs of people. Don't you just want that sometimes? Maybe not too much shaking here. We just put this place up. But, <laughs> and I'm not talking about little magic tricks that God can do, like walking on water or uh, turning water into wine. I'm talking about real things, real power. I'm not talking about like endless fish tacos after a conference on the grass of about 5,000 people. Fish sandwiches? Okay, anyway. <laughs> okay, I'm talking about real displays of power. And you know what? For every one of you in this room today or online today that are in Christ you are actually a display of the greatest power that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. Amen? Amen. Death to life. That's what Paul wants the Ephesians to know, and because it's God's word, that's what God wants us to know today. So this week, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what the hope is that we're called to, what the inheritance is, and what God's immeasurably great power actually does. So there's four things that we need to come to grips with in order to know those things, okay? Before we get into that, I want to pray. I was going to pray at the very beginning, but I felt weird praying right after Kyle prayed. Lord, forgive me for that. Never, ever resist the urge to pray. So let's, let's pray right now. Father in heaven, we, we come to you 
as Mary sat before Jesus, we set aside the hustle and bustle right now, God. We set aside being troubled about so many things. And we take Mary's posture at your feet. We need to see you, Lord. We need to be transformed by the hope that you've called us to. We need to be transformed as we behold the inheritance that you have for us. We need to be transformed by your immeasurably great power, Lord God. And so we sit at your feet now as we open your word. We ask you to speak. We want to see your power. And so we ask you to speak. Speak transformatively, Lord. And impart to us your character and your power and your authority. Be glorified in our midst. Be shown mighty and great in our midst, God. We wait expectantly. Uh, Teach us, Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. Amen. If you can, please stand. We're going to... We're just going to read this passage, and we stand out of respect and honor for God's Word. As we read this passage, dear friends, please hear it for what it is. This is the Word of God. God is, God is speaking, and everything I'm going to say after is a pathetic little commentary on the actual sermon. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Please be seated, and would God bless the reading of his word. So there's four things that we need to not just comprehend, but apprehend. Four things we need to come to grips with in order to know God's call of hope, his inheritance and power. And here's the first thing. You can jot this down. To know God's call to hope, his inheritance and power, I must recognize my problem. I must recognize my problem. We need to get the right diagnosis. And the world hasn't got the right diagnosis. And, and the temptation and the messaging that comes at us all the time is neither do we. We don't know what it is. 
But we do. God wrote a book. And so if we look at verses 1 through 3, here's the diagnosis. Here's the problem. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. That means separated from God. In trespasses and sins. Trespasses just refers to rebellion. When you, when you trespass a property line, you're actually overstepping your bounds. And that's the plight of humanity. We overstep our bounds and we say, God, I'd rather be in your place. And that, that was the temptation in the garden. The serpent said, you know, hey, you're not going to die. You, you do this thing that God told you not to do. He's just withholding good things from you. Step across. Take it. Eat it. You'll become like God. Don't you want to be like God? Well, there's two ways of being like God. There's being like God because we're being created or uh, or recreated back into what we were supposed to be. Being like Jesus is a good thing in character. But trying to be like God in scope and rule is a bad thing. He's the sovereign. He's the king. That's not our role. So we are dead, separated from him in rebellion, that's trespasses, and then sins. Sins is an archery term. It just means missing the mark. When you aim at a target and you miss your target, that is sin. So sin is failure to live according to God's design and purpose. It's it's a failure, and it's not a passive failure. It's an active failure. God, I don't want to be what you made me to be. I want to be what I want to make myself to be. And isn't that the cry of the world today? We've gone in 20 years from a time where the statement, I am a man living in a woman's body, is not only not incoherent, but it's accepted and affirmed and celebrated And there are many like it. Don't get me wrong. That's not the big sin. The big sin is any type of rebellion against God. Overstepping our bounds and actively working to not live according to God's design and purpose. And that separates us from God. So Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There are three great influences that, that, that we encounter living in this ocean of rebellion and failure. The first is that we are influenced by the world. Look at verse two, in which you once walked following the course of the world. Well, what is, what is the course of this world? Well, the world has been subject to futility. It's been, it's been corrupted because of sin. And so the way of the world, that's what that means, that the course of this world, the way of the world is to move anti-God, is to move contrary to God. It's the system or the way that is anti-God. That's what is being referred to here. What's the second one? Well, the second one's the devil. Look at verse two. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is the prince of the power of the air or the the ruler of the authority of the lower heavens. He doesn't rule in the heavenly places. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But when Adam Adam believed what Satan said and said, you know what? Um, 
you are, what you're saying is true. This is good for me. What God is saying is not true. Then the stewardship that humanity was given over creation was then given to the enemy. And that's why he rules over the power of the air or over the lower realms. So when we're walking in trespasses and sins, we're following the course of the world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. And we are living in verse three in the passions of our flesh. There's the third influence. The fallen nature, the fallen humanity, the living, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What does the fallen body order us to do? You've got some problems. Go and drink. Okay, I'll, I'll go drink. I need it. There are people all over the place who can't put food on the table, but they can buy alcohol. And alcohol's not, drinking alcohol is not wrong. The abuse of it is, just as the abuse of anything is wrong. There are people who are drowning uh, fears and anxieties in food. The body says, go and eat that food. It makes you feel good. We go, okay, okay, I'll go eat that food. The body says, go and engage and indulge yourself sexually. And we say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll go do that, I'll go do that. Sleep is another one. Go to bed late. You don't need sleep. And then in the morning, you need sleep. And you get fired from your job because the body says, take sleep. And you say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take some more sleep. That's what it is to, to be carrying out the desires of the fallen flesh, the demands of the body. What about the mind? Well, the, mind's, the mind says, this is actually a really good thing for me. Buying a house I can't afford in a car, chasing that guy's wife. Wealth, status, all of those temptations. The fallen mind desires these things and focuses mind and effort on those things. That's what it is to be influenced by the passions of the flesh, the passions of the fallen person. So those are those three influences, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The Bible says that we're, apart from God, we're following those things. And then here's the outworking of it. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See that in verse three. By nature children of wrath. What does that mean? That's the scary part. See, um, if it was true uh, that I was just dead and when all of this is done, I just go into the ground and cease to exist. A large portion of the West believes that. You know why? Because they have to. The alternative is terrifying. So if that's true, we just cease to exist. Okay, let's, let's do the thought experiment. Then that's fine. Why would I quit my rebellion and, and, and failure? It's kind of fun, to be honest with you. And if there are no consequences, why would I stop? This is the terrifying thing, though. All of these things are true of us apart from God, and we are by nature children of wrath. What is wrath? God's wrath is not like human wrath. It's not, it's not reactionary. It's not unjust. God's wrath is the righteous, perfect response to rebellion and failure. Because God is just. 
We want justice when someone has sinned against us, when someone has rebelled against us, when someone has failed to live up to our standards. Then we want justice, right? But when we're the one who has rebelled, when we're the one who fails, now we want what? Mercy. But God, make sure there's so many things going on in the world right now. Make sure that you bring justice. How can I believe in a God who would let all of this evil run rampant throughout the earth? I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God who is unjust. Be careful what you're asking for because there is none good. There is no one righteous. If we got perfect justice, we would be incinerated by the glory of God, the weight of who he is. So it's God's great patience and mercy that allows us opportunity to persist through our own rebellion and our own failure to live up to what we were created and designed to be. But we are by nature children of wrath, like all the rest of mankind. Justice is coming. This is a hard thing to preach. I don't, most of you who know me, I'm a little more happy-go-lucky, but this is true. And I care about you. And God cares about you. And so we must properly diagnose the problem. We must recognize the problem. What's really ironic is that the world says, I can't help it. I was born this way. It's my nature. And you know what? In this text, look at it. You were dead in trespasses and sins, among whom you all lived in the passions of flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So the world says, I can't help it. I was born like this. And you know what? God says, I know. You can't help it. You were born like this. The difference, though, is that the world says, because I'm born like this, I, can't, I shouldn't be held responsible for all this stuff. And God says, well, you know what? You were born that way, but come this way. I've made a way for you. Come my way. Go away from that stuff. It hurts you. Come to me. And then the world says, no, I like this. And now we realize that the problem is not that we were born this way. The problem is not that we're born this way if God can fix it. The problem is that we won't admit that what God says is true and that there is a problem because we like rebellion and failure. We like creating our own reality. Tell me I'm wrong. The reason we don't spend time in God's word is we don't want to. The reason we struggle in prayer is because we don't want to. We don't, we don't want to pray. Let's just call it what it is. That's the course of the world, the devil and his minions, and the desires of the flesh. So for those of us who are in Christ, we've got to resist that. We've got to grow toward him and be imparted with his character and his power and his authority so that we are no longer subjecting ourselves to the rulers of the lower places here. And if, and if you're not in Christ... Well, we're getting there. The greatest problem facing the world today is separation from God and destined for wrath. All of the other problems 
hunger, poverty, climate change, even natural disasters. What, what is natural disaster? Like, how is, that, how is that our problem? We were given domain over the earth. When we sinned in Adam, that domain was corrupted and given over to darkness. That's where natural disasters come from. When Jesus returns, there will be no more natural disasters. Disease, discrimination, these are all symptoms. God must deal with them because the source is rebellion and failure to live up to God's design. And he is just. He will have justice. Well, have a great rest of your day. Go in peace. I'm just kidding. Um, God never leaves treatment of wrath without hope. Okay? And we see that, we see that in verse 4. But God. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an accurate diagnosis of what the problem is. And then verse 4, a new day dawns. But God. The two most beautiful words in the whole Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul just erupts here and he says, by grace you have been saved. It's not really part of the sentence grammatically, but I just think he can't help himself. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's God. So he says, hey guys, there's a big problem. But I'm a big God and I've created an awesome solution. So we, so we recognize the problem, but, but there's a part two. To know God's call of hope and his inheritance and power, I must, and you can jot this down, receive God's grace. God's grace is real. It exists. It's floating around, if you will. But you got to receive it. We can't receive God's grace when we're saying, no, I'll do it my way. I'll do it my way. We can't receive God's grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. I'm just going to sum this up really, really quick because you know the story. God saw our plight, sent his son to the earth to take on human flesh, to live the life we were supposed to live but couldn't. He lives a sinless life. No rebellion, no failure to live up to God's purpose and design for him. And then he goes to the cross. Evil men kill him. Because evil men cannot abide truth. Evil people cannot abide truth. And so he dies on the cross. This is how this works. Jesus leaves the riches that he deserves and dies a death he does not deserve so that we can avoid the wrath we do deserve and inherit the riches that we can't deserve. That's the gospel. Jesus substitutes his life for ours. And the only appropriate response is to say, okay, Jesus, because you did that for me, 
your mercy, not giving me what I deserve, and your grace, giving me what I don't deserve. You substituted your place for mine. I'm gonna give you my whole life so that you can live through it. And you can, and you can remake me into what I am supposed to be. That is the gospel. And in verse eight, where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that's what that means. The objective reality is that we are saved by God's grace. His love, his mercy, just the free offering in his goodness, that's grace. Unmerited favor, I've given you favor. By the way, if you are hearing God's word right now and you're hearing the gospel right now, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, this is an expression of God's grace. He's given you unmerited favor to hear this word, to hear this news. And then we receive it by faith. That's the means by which we are saved by grace. What does that mean? Well, faith is just simply trust. So I just say, I just say Jesus, I, I believe what you say. I believe what you've done. I receive that. I trust you. And now I'm going to turn away from all of this stuff, this rebellion and failure, and I'm going to turn to you and I'm going to say, you remake me in your image. That's the gospel. And then we grow in that. So part of receiving God's grace means that I must, and here's number three, and you can write this down, I must relinquish my pride Look at verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God. Why? Why did God make it so it's not our doing? Well, look at verse eight. It is the gift of God, going into verse nine, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The problem is the human, the human species is a boastful, arrogant species. Don't you hate it when people boast? Boast about their grandkids, boast about their kids, boast about, just like, bo okay, you can boast about your grandkids. But we're a boastful species. We will fix ourselves. We will create our own reality and we will fix ourselves. And you know what the problem is? God does not share glory. He gives glory to those who persevere to the end and are raised up with Christ into the heavenly places, but he does not share glory. We cannot take glory from him. So we've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not our doing. We cannot add to it. We cannot help ourselves along. There is nothing that we can do that way. God does not share glory. He has done all of it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of the isms, Sexism, racism, ageism, they're all forms of elitism. And you know what elitism says? I'm more deserving than you because I'm a man. I'm more deserving of you because I'm, or more deserving than you because I'm a woman. I'm more deserving than you because I'm tall. I'm more deserving of you because of the, or than you because of the color of my skin, or I'm more deserving than you because of my education, because of my pedigree, because of whatever. And this is the way the world is going. They call it intersectionality. I've got to find out what sets me apart from everyone else so that I can be as special as possible. 
something that elevates me above you. I'm better than you. I'm above you because I'm on this platform right now. I, by the way, I don't really know what it is to be taller than many people, so this is awesome, but <laughs> we need to relinquish our pride in order to get rid of all of those isms. They're evil, and they will be dealt with one day. Deal with them now. Receive Jesus. Let him recreate you into what you were designed for so that you can enjoy the riches of the heavenly places. And here's the last point. Part of receiving God's grace, in order for me to know the call, to his call to hope, in order for me to know his inheritance and power, I must realize my purpose. Verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why does God do all of this? It's to display himself, to display his greatness. Do you know that you've been created to be like a prism and reflect God's greatness out into the world so that everyone sees your good works and glorifies your Father in heaven? That's what we were created for, created for good works that glorify God. Now, that doesn't mean that we work to earn his favor to glorify God. We can't do that. Paul made that explicitly clear. This is all his doing. So we receive a recreation from him when we turn to him in faith and trust, and then we are recreated in him so that we can actually do good works. We can actually reflect him in the world. And that's what the world needs, amen? All of these things that we're seeing are a direct result of the brokenness that comes from rebellion and sin. Full stop. But Jesus wants to restore these things, and one day he's coming back, and he's coming back with grace for those who receive him, and he's coming back with wrath for those who will not. And he will set things to right. Our purpose is so that the greatness of God would be displayed. And look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. And the, I know some of you in this room are great woodworkers, and I've seen some of the things that you've made. Amazing things. Your workmanship displays your skill. Your workmanship displays your artistry. God's workmanship displays his skill, his artistry, his power. If you want to see the power of God Look at the people who have gone from darkness to light. Look at the people that he has brought from the realm of rebellion and failure, and he is now remaking them, giving them a new heart, making them up in his image again so that they can do the things that reflect a good and powerful God. And that's what the world needs. Guess what the gospel is, people? The gospel is God. Amen? The gospel is God. The good news that the world needs is God. Amen. The greatest proclamation of the gospel, or the, sorry, the greatest benefit to mankind will always be the proclamation of the gospel because the gospel is the only thing that contains the power to change human hearts. Romans 1 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. 
The gospel is the power of God because God is the gospel and he has made a way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done. Thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for living a sinless life. Thank you for offering yourself up. This is something the world does not do. Thank you for offering yourself up in our place to die a death that we deserve and to face a wrath that we deserve so that we don't have to face eternal death and so that we can be raised up with you and seated with you in the heavenly places receiving a destiny and riches that we do not deserve. Thank you, God. Holy Spirit, thank you for for guiding us and, and, and leading us into all truth and for calling. Lord, continue to call. Holy Spirit, continue to work. Continue to open eyes so that we would know the hope to which we are called, that we would know the glorious inheritance that you have for your people, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Change our lives, transform us. Impart to us your character, Lord, your power, your authority. And Lord, give us demonstrations of your power in the salvation of your people. We want to see lives changed. And we want to see you glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name for Jesus' glory. Amen.